Welcome to the Game Changers podcast. We are your hosts, Associate Professor of Education and Enterprise, Philip Cummins, and prominent educational thought leader, Adriano De Prado. The Game Changers podcast aims to not only put a spotlight on the innovative ideas shaping the landscape of 21st century schooling, but to enter into a deep dialogue with those brave pioneers, the true game changers in education those individuals that don't wait for permission, leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in this new world environment. These are their stories. Imagine if two history teachers and an art teacher walk into a bar and begin a conversation. Imagine if for once the art teacher was outnumbered. Imagine if life was an adventure. Imagine if life was a project. Imagine if we could think about stepping forward into the future. Think about a big step forward and up. Think about Lonnie Belkvist, the founder of Imagine If, a remarkable teacher and pedagogue. I'm so excited that we got the opportunity to talk with her today, Adriana. I can't wait. Let's go. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little insight into our Series 7 sponsor? Thanks, Adriano. Of course I can. We are proud to be partnered with EDAPT Education. EDAPT Education helps schools from around Australia bring together their academic engagement, wellbeing, intervention and student voice data onto one platform. Let your data work for you to improve the academic growth and wellbeing of all students in your school. For training and support to help you get started, visit www.edapt.education. That's www.edapt.education. Let's go. Phil, it is so wonderful to be with you again on the Game Changers for Series 7. I can't believe another series we're, we're knocking out here. And I'm really excited because we just continue to travel across the globe, Phil. Absolutely. Do you know, do you know today it's Gostein in Denmark, the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy, and mm-hmm. some shithole called Sunshine. Hey, hey, be nice to Sunshine. Be careful because I know lots of people here, my friend, and I tell you what, they won't take too kindly to putting down Sunshine. Anyway, enough of this nonsense. Let's get to our wonderful guest. Loni, I'm going to ask you the very first question that we ask all of our Game Changer guests, and that is, tell us a little bit about your story, how you've gotten to where you are today. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you for having me on here. I think uh, it feels... I don't know, like, I'm a little nervous because such a privilege actually to meet you two and and to get to talk about, yeah, I think the journey uh, that I've been on. So thank you for having me. Um, Hey, Lonnie, hey, Lonnie, Lonnie, honestly, the privilege is ours. It really, really is. So thank (laughs) you for coming here. Well, uh, it's a mutual privilege then. Um, Yeah, you know, I actually never wanted to be a teacher. And and it's kind of funny that I ended up in the education world. But um, when I was in college, I was a theater major and my parents, I grew up in the middle of Wisconsin in the USA, which is basically a small town surrounded by cornfields essentially. And as a theater major, I think my parents kind of looked around the cornfields and they were like, where is she gonna act and do theater? So they forced me to take an education course. And, and by forced, I mean, they threatened to cut off all funding to university if I didn't take an education course. And their thought was that it would always be my fallback plan. So if acting didn't work out, like I could always go back to my hometown and teach. That was their thought. I I had to take an education course. And one of the very first courses that I took was called multicultural education. 
And I, I sat there, I didn't want to be there. I thought everything they were talking about was just so boring. But the professor opened one of the courses with a question to all of us. He said, what do you stand for? And I remember being 21 years old. I was a junior in college. And I remember this feeling of that being the very first time in my life that anybody had ever asked me that question. At 21, what do you stand for? What are you going to stand up for? What are you going to use your life for? And that question ended up haunting me. So for, for two weeks, I, I went back to my dorm and I just was like, what do I stand for? What do I stand for? Like, I, it really sent me into this kind of like existential crisis. And I realized that actually what I stood for was never again having someone reach the age of 21 years old and never having been asked that question. So I ended up going to the registrar changing my major to be a history major so that I could become a teacher. And I kind of never looked back. That has always become my massive reason for wanting to be a teacher, which is to help other people develop what they stand for and what they're going to not necessarily commit their life to, but what, what they really value and what kind of impact they want to make in the world. So that's kind of the first chapter, I would say, from going from like never wanting to become a teacher, thinking it's the most boring, awful, you know, uh, thing in the world um, to actually realizing that there is such an impact to be made in the world of education and helping young people develop who they are, but also yeah, essentially what they stand for. So that's the short version, I would say, or at least the first chapter to the story. Thank you very much for sharing that. And, and no doubt we're going to have an opportunity in the next 45 minutes or so to keep unpacking a little bit of those moments that brought you to where you are today, uh, those pivotal moments along your particular journey. But you now find yourself in an environment of Denmark and a place that has given us Bang & Olufsen, a place that's given us Arne Jacobsen's egg chair. We've got Royal Copenhagen porcelain. We've even got the architect of our Sydney Opera House that originated from That's Denmark. Right. Yeah. There's Lego, there's colourful houses, and of course, you know, pastries. And, and licorice is quite a, quite a popular, you know, construct. I'm sharing some of those things with you because context is so significant in what you're trying to achieve with Imagine If and the notion of embedding a project-based learning into the kind of vernacular of our schooling systems. And you're in an environment where its context is repeatedly spoken about as being the happiest place on earth. I reckon it's the Lego because, you know, I just used to love Lego <laughs> myself, you know, playing with Lego and, and, and making and creating. You know, there's a formula and then we pull it apart and then we just create our own narratives and stories on a regular basis, right? And the power of a product like Lego is that they have iteration after iteration after iteration, no different to the, the notion of project-based learning. What is it about your current environment where you find yourself today that has had an influence on the construct of Imagine If and the impact it has had on your organization in having the thinking around how we might work, how we might live, how we might learn and how we might lead into the future? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and, and actually, I've been in Denmark now six, uh, yeah, six, seven years, actually. So it's it's been quite a long period of time to kind of be immersed in this country. And I think understand a bit more about the context, because one of the, the first things I think that's 
that's critical is that the context doesn't come overnight. There are so many subtleties to being Danish and to the culture to understand what that is that I don't think I really started to understand until maybe year three, four or five. One of the things that I think has been really impactful and has actually shifted my own thinking around project-based learning and around the work that we do at Imagine If is coming to a country where more or less people are trusting and they trust each other. And there is a massive, um, while there are constraints in the education system here, there are you know learning goals and mandated curriculum and exams. It is really relatively uh, small compared to other countries. I spent several years working in the UK with Ofsted and all of these like major uh, accountability measures. But Denmark does things differently. And one of those things is really putting a tremendous amount of trust into the professionals in the education world. So we've been able to more or less iterate and play with project-based learning here in a way that's opened up so many opportunities to see how PBL can be done in an environment where there's less accountability structures, I would say, um, which I think has been uh, not only amazing and something to learn from, but also I think has been very inspirational for the other countries that we work in and that we work with. The other thing about that that um, has shifted for me, I'm an American, so generally I'm very mistrusting of everybody else. You know, I think everyone is going to threaten me to some extent. And, and here with this level of security and safety, there's a lot more, I think, mental safety for play, for experimentation, for failure, for something to not work and actually learn from that. So in the schools, you know, the first couple of years I was working in Denmark, I would go into a school and I would talk to the teachers and say, oh, we're going to try a project. And, you know, if it doesn't work, like, let's reflect on that and figure out what to do. And they were just like, yeah, of course. And, and coming from the UK, where if I said that to a group of UK teachers, they'd be like, but what if Ofsted came in? And, you know, what about the exams? And there would be all of this, um, I, I guess, obstacles to actually trying something. So I think in Denmark, generally, the culture is, is much more focused on a, a natural learning process in school, but also, I think, nurtured through a very supportive family life. I mean, maternity leave is a year here. It's very much um, expected that families spend time together. I mean, everybody's home from work about 4.30, so you can pick up your kids and be with your kids all evening. I mean, there's a work-life balance here that is I've never seen anywhere else. So there are a lot of things about the culture that infiltrates the education system and I think actually makes project-based learning or something like PBL a really not only logical fit, but something that is embraced on many levels because it actually returns to a lot of foundational things about what it is to be Danish. Finally, the last point is um, I was blown away when I first came here to learn that in elections, local elections, national elections, they have 70-80% participation from citizens. And coming from the US, we're like, we're lucky to get like 20% in a local election. It was like, this is crazy. Mm -hmm. Like people are informed, they're involved. And, and in the school, you know, this idea of democracy, this idea of kids having co-ownership, co-creation, having a say, this is natural. So kids call their teachers by their first names here in Denmark. There's a much more flat hierarchical structure in schools and leadership and companies generally. And I think all of those things really have played 
a massive role in what we do with school and how we look at PBL, but also have definitely influenced Imaginif. We run our company much less like an American company and a lot more like a Danish one. So Lonnie, I want to pick up on some of what you're talking about there because uh, there's parts of this that I think really need to be teased out. And if our game changer professorial fellow, Parsi Salberg was here right now, he would be talking about very much about that, that contrast between the busyness of Australian schools and a different pace. And if we were talking with our game changer and School for Tomorrow founding partner, Adriana De Prado, he would be going off right now because he would be talking about our obsession with time in our part of the world, where we feel as though it's, it's a race to cram in as much as possible. So bear with me. I love cooking. I really, really love cooking. If you think about cooking, there's fast food and there's slow food. For me, the notion of slow cooking heals my soul. If I can spend two, three hours in the afternoon with family, friends, a glass of wine, possibly three glasses of wine, slowly doing what needs to be done and attending to the things that need to be done. Not only am I fed and fueled at the end physically, there's something holistic that happens in that process. I want to talk about slow learning because everything that you're talking about there is about slow learning, isn't it? It understands that there is a life to be lived and in that life to be lived, there are things to be learned along the way. I said earlier, you know, life is an adventure, life's a project as well too, isn't it? And that there are pieces that we need to work out bit by bit by bit. And if we're not ready to work on it this year, it's okay to work on it next year. I want to talk about the conditions that lead to deep, highly collaborative and powerful learning in schools. And I want you to share with us, if you can, the way in which your experience of the slow cooking of human beings in the school environments that you work and lead in works. Yeah, I, I love the analogy to slow cooking. Um, and, and one of the things that just struck me from, from you talking about that was um, th this situation that happened after schools reopened with COVID last year. So Denmark actually was the first country to reopen schools in Europe. And actually we led with that here. And one of the situations that happened was that class sizes were broken down into groups of like 10 kids. They called them, you know, like little learning pods. And I remember um, the first time I was able to go back into a school, I saw a teacher that I had been working with for a couple years have this group of 10 kids. And I was asking her like, oh, like, are you working on a project? Like, what are you doing today? And she said, well, no, we're just going to go outside and the kids are going to take a look around. We're going to spend some time just silently listening to what's going on. And then they're going to write down in their journal all of the questions that they have, they have just from listening. And I was like, okay, that's really interesting. You know, and of course, like in the back of my mind, I'm like, all right, where's the learning happening? But I'm not saying that because that's not what I believe, actually. I think I also get conditioned to anticipate what other people would say about that. But we went outside and I was with her class. And one thing that I noticed is that she, in this kind of condition, was able to listen and follow her students. She had like a tentative plan, but she actually had the content come from them. So they listened, they came up with questions, and that's what drove their inquiry over the next week or so. 
from that situation, you know, I could think back to a year before, before COVID, where, you know, she had a class of 30 kids, for example, and she was someone that was extremely structured. She needed to know what was happening every single day, every single period of the week. But all of a sudden in this situation where she had less kids, she could actually slow cook. She could go slow. She could let the learning, let the content actually come from them, which I thought was a massive shift for this teacher. But actually COVID was kind of the catalyst or the reopening after COVID was the catalyst for that. So one of the conditions that I think is really important in that learning with kids or going slow with kids is conditionally, I think the number of kids in a class, when you've got 30 kids or 40 kids, I've had classes of 38 kids, it's really difficult to know every single kid deeply, to listen to them, to find a space to actually um, understand what they're interested in. And also, I think, you know, some of the restrictions or some of the conditions around, you know, learning goals and mandated curriculum, I think that also fuels a lot of this fast paced education world. But all of a sudden with COVID, you know, reopening restrictions, having smaller classes, this, this enabled a totally different way of working for this teacher. But the other part of that that I just touched on briefly was actually really getting to know kids. And this is where when I was teaching at, you know, traditional schools and had 38, 35 kids in a class, I mean, just to know their names was a victory sometimes, um, but also to, to really understand where kids were coming from was challenging. So I think the first step in order to move into conditions that allow for slow cooking, we, we actually have to strip down some of the, the organizational structures of school. And one of those things, one massive thing is actually making those class sizes a lot smaller if it's possible. So an investment into class size and maybe we'll get on to assessment as well too because I've got a real beam my bonnet about that but that could take us forever in and around that because you know if you're going to have assessment it's got to be meaningful and, right. and it's got to be powerful and it's got to propel the growth in character competency and wellness of students. It, it can't simply be there to be some sort of Darwinian contest in who can memorize the most amount of stuff for a short period of time to win the race to get into an elite and exclusive program at the expense of other people. I don't think that's just morally untenable. Having had my little rant about that, I want to shift from the slow cooking of students to the slow cooking of staff. So if I can tell you a story um, in and around this, I think the big shift in my history teaching occurred really in the ninth year that I was working as a chalky. And I had the opportunity to take through two sets of parallel classes, one in year 11 and one in year 12. So I had two ancient history classes in year 11, two ancient history classes in year 12 and year 12 in the jurisdiction I was, the great state of New South Wales, the Prado. That's, that's the final year. So I had the opportunity with these two different classes because up to that point, I'd been the master of narrative and the master of content. Here's the stuff, cram it in, churn it out, lots of high relational stuff, lots of energy, lots of motivational sort of stuff to jolly people through. Pretty successful on the whole. When I wasn't successful, really wasn't a very good look at all because I missed the mark. But, you know, pretty good teacher, I thought. I'm walking two classes through and I've made the decision for some reason, I'm not going to teach one of these classes facts. I'm going to teach them historical concepts and they're going to have to bring the facts to the class. And then the other class, I taught the way I had been teaching. And I did that in year 11 and I did that in year 12. And of course, both of the classes, which were conceptually driven rather than factually driven, I finally got the results that I was looking for. 
And, you know, that was a really, really powerful moment in my life. That took me nine years to get to that point as a teacher. And, and I had been working at this for a very, very long time. I become very concerned that we don't allow teachers to slow cook. We don't allow teachers just to nurdle away at something over an extended period of time. And then we give them too many things to do, too many boxes to tick. And then we live as chalkies in the cult of busy. We're always so busy. You ask a teacher, you know, what they are, what they're doing. They say, I'm busy. It's the worst possible answer. We live in our reptilian brains all the time. It's flight or fright. How do we help teachers to slow cook their practice? Well, <clears throat> I have a lot of, uh, I think, cheeky answers for that, that I'll refrain from saying. But I, <laughs> I, I think one of, one of the things that, that is massively important is actually to, to I, I think it, a lot of it comes down from an individual leadership perspective, to help actually clear the plates of teachers generally. And before we work with any school with project-based learning, that's that's a really key key step. I think a lot of leadership teams are like, oh, PBL is a great thing and we're just going to do it. But actually, you know, there's a great analogy that that I saw someone do where the workshop leader had someone take their right hand and write their name 10 times. And then they said, okay, now let's pretend that hand is broken and take your non-dominant hand and write your name 10 times. And how did that feel? And they reflected on that being extremely challenging. It took them a lot more time. They had to do a lot more concentration, a lot more focusing. And, and then the workshop leader said, okay, now let's pretend both hands are healthy and work. Which hand are you gonna write your name with? And almost all of the participants went back to their dominant hand. And I think what that illustrates is, of course, in a change process and with project-based learning specifically, we're talking about a change process and we'll get back to your slow cooking bit in just a minute. But, um, but I think with a change process, teachers are going through change processes often. You know, there's often a new initiative. There's often something else that a leader says, hey, this is a great idea, let's try this. And so if teachers had to just teach, uh, if that was like the only thing on their plate, I, I think that there would be a lot less constraints um, and there would be a lot more ability to actually, you know, slow teach or slow cook in that way. But because of the nature of what it is to be a teacher these days and this kind of revolving door of new initiatives, either by the government or by leadership or whatever, it's really, really challenging for teachers to find the time to actually sink into something new. So clearing the plates of teachers, I think generally every year is something that's really critical, but is especially critical if you're trying to add something new like project-based learning, for example, and actually start to work through a change process of some kind. Um, the other thing I would say about that is that I think there is something when we start to work as teachers in a slower way that we almost start to feel like we're doing something wrong. When we actually have time, when we have space with kids, when we can actually listen to them, at first it feels like something we're not doing because I think as teachers we're used to doing all the time. So to have some space to think and to reflect, it always feels like there's a ball dropping somewhere. And I think that can be an extremely personal challenge and almost like an identity challenge for some teachers. We're used to being a certain way. And all of a sudden when that fundamentally changes or we're not doing a million things at once, 
Um, I think that can be uncomfortable actually, even though I think that's the thing that a lot of teachers actually advocate for, right? To do, to do less or to have less on their plate. So I think it's a combination really of clearing the plates and understanding what things are absolutely essential here for great student learning and also helping teachers understand and go through this process of kind of that change of identity of what it actually means to be a teacher. I know when I was in a traditional school, like I would go home and I would, I would know if it was a good day. Like my kids sat in their seats, they did the assignment. Um, there's, you know, pretty good feedback. There's maybe a lively conversation. Like that was a good day. And with something like project-based learning, we're moving into a space where I think it's much more difficult to put a finger on what is a good day because it's messier. And it actually, I think, challenges some of the ways that we've been conditioned to feel as teachers and to actually think about our job. Um, so I, I use project-based learning because I think that that's probably as close to like slow teaching or slow cooking as we can get. Um, but, it, but it is a massive shift for a lot of teachers in the, the logistics and the planning, but also in the feeling and in the identity and in the role. Stewie, there's so much in what you're sharing with us today about the psychology in the way in which the adults learn as much as the young people in our care learn and the impact of the environment having on us and kind of the hardwiredness that we bring then to those spaces. Because, you know, I, I feel for teachers because we've been hardwired in, in, a, in a particular paradigm that's about productivity from an from a economical sense of productivity, you know, and measuring every single thing in productivity. And that's apparently what develops our worth. That's how often society in different parts of the world measure the value of their teacher. That's not necessarily always the case in places like Denmark or Finland or Estonia or even Japan or, and so on, uh, who, who are now looking obviously at other things to measure the, the value that those individuals continue to bring. I want to now take us though to exploring what the notion of leading deep and highly productive and powerful learning looks like in schools. But I don't want to have a conversation with, with you about PBL because I think the three of us are in that pocket and we're open to the possibility of PBL and some of us more so than others in sense that we're doing it all the time. I'm interested in the psychology though, because we know that there's a difference between projects and PBL. We know that projects, the audiences are offered in the schools where PBL, the audience is the real life. We know that projects is off, are often pre-planned and clear, but PBL is more organic and open-ended. We know that projects are based on directions and criteria where PBL is often based on purpose and inquiry. We know that projects are about the student is the student, but under PBL, the student assumes an authentic role. We know that projects are about ultimately being handed into a teacher where PBL is often published in a real world context, or that would be an ideal or, or to a real world audience. And that we know that projects are often about simply models and assignments based where PBL is more about the problem and the opportunity that is born from that, particularly ones that uh, leverage uh, social change and human endeavour type initiatives and, and, and delve into the consciousness of young people's advocacy for change, you know, uh, and, and human rights and, and, and environmental issues and so on. But I'm interested in linking all of that because I think we're all sold on, we feel that is a way to go to achieve really effective and lead really effective, deep and highly collaborative and powerful learning in, in, in learning communities. I'm interested though more in the psychology and something that you touched upon very early in one of your responses to Phil, and that was where you used the word trust and that you're now finding yourself in an environment 
that was totally foreign to you, that feels very different, but you've stepped into that space and there's, there seems to be great space of permission and, and, and uh, empowerment and people allow you to do that. So there's a, there's a new relationship with failure happening there too, isn't there? My question to you is, is around the piece of then the psychological safety that you're talking about. How, how do we help educators in a classroom or not in a classroom, whichever context they're in, actually cultivate psychological safety so that these young people in their care can continue to step into that space of permission and that space of learner agency? My first instinct is to respond about developing culture. And, and I think that this is something that as a, as a training teacher, like I always knew, okay, culture in a class is important, but I, I looked at that as like routines in the class or ways that kids should raise their hand, like very like management things. But, but moving into a space where kids feel like they have not only permission to fail and to iterate and to experiment, but also permission to really be themselves is what, what we're asking for, mm-hmm. um, is something that is cultivated, I think over number one, a long period of time. Like it, it's not something that happens in one week of community building at the beginning of the school year. It is a foundational mindset that every single day you're going into the classroom thinking about how are we building this community? How are we functioning at this community? And I think a lot of that really starts Starts with kids being able to be themselves and giving them opportunities to be themselves, but also providing some structure so that kids can interact with each other and relate to each other in a way that is positive, that is feeling safe. So what I mean by that is restorative circles can be a way to do that. Um, Starting every class, for example, with, you know, a community circle where kids are sharing about their day, about their weekend. And if, you know, if kids start to kind of, uh, you know, jump on each other or talk out of turn, actually being quite strict about, no, we're listening to each other. This is really important that we do this. So the first thing, I mean, really is about setting these opportunities for kids to know each other and share with each other about things that have absolutely nothing to do with school. Mm -hmm. Because again, what we're trying to do is actually have kids be themselves. And and for a lot of kids, that doesn't include school or the Mm -hmm. things in school. Mm -hmm. They have a world outside side of it. So, so bringing those things in and not just in a way of like, well, it's important that we know what kids do on the weekends, but actually really valuing that and saying, you know what, these are people, they're not just students in my, in my history class. Like these are kids that have, have lives and have stories and, and actually should be provided a space to tell them. And then I think the second piece to that is actually nurturing that kind of space continuously and remembering to come back to it kind of over and over and over again. So at High Tech High, we had something called advisory, um, also called crew in, in different spaces. And I don't think the concept is like revolutionary, but the idea that you've got a place in school where you can come to and actually be with people that are listening, honoring you. Um, And that's the whole point of it. There is no academic learning outside of that. The point is really to, to be part of a community. And then the final piece that I would say is, although we're not talking about PBL specifically, mm-hmm. the best projects that I have ever seen and ever done are ones that actually have this community piece at its foundation, where kids are doing authentic work, where they actually need each other. 
not just need each other in like a superficial way, like you're the recorder, I'm the facilitator, but actually need the skills that every single kid brings to the table. So just a really short example of that is at High Tech High Chula Vista, this is many years ago, we had a student who had severe autism and he would come into class every day and take a computer and it was really hard for him to interact with peers and, and the community generally, but we kept working on it. We were doing a project where we were designing a park and long story short, um, I was noticing that kids were sending out emails to contractors, to people in the real world, and they were filled with spelling errors. Like these are ninth grade students and it just was, oh, like it kept me up at night because there were so many spelling errors. And so I was having to go through and like fix everything and give the feedback. Well, this student um, was actually one who every time something was misspelled on the board, he would be the one to raise his hand and he would say, Miss, that's spelled wrong. You know, and it's kind of like, it would drive you crazy to be like, I knew that this was gonna happen every single time. So we started thinking about like, what, what if this student actually could become our editor in the project? And every email that went out that needed to go out, it first needed to be sent to the student. He had to look at it. He had to fill out a piece of paper, giving feedback on the specific spelling errors. And then he had to walk with his computer over to the student that sent it and have a conversation about the spelling errors that was in this email and what needed to be fixed. We didn't know if it would work. So we tried it for a few weeks and actually we could see that the emails were going out without any spelling errors, which was fantastic. And then at the end of our project time, we have like a celebration circle where we actually share as a, a big team. So there's like 60 students, we share out anyone that helped during that class period, anyone that contributed in a positive way. And actually towards the end of the project, several times this student who was correcting the emails was actually the one that people celebrated. Yeah. And they said, you know what, we actually couldn't have sent this out without this student. So while I think building community and honoring every kid for who they are is the foundation, it is strengthened and it is actually realized when we put kids in situations where they can actually use who they are as people and use their talents and skills in a really real way. You know, it's, it's so powerful with what you're sharing. You know, my, my takeaway at the moment is, is that th th this notion of psychological safety is something that Phil and I have spoken about a lot with our Game Changer guests and they have spoken to us about. And, and what I'm hearing you say in the examples that you've just shared is that, you know, it starts with that deep sense of belonging. So there's kind of an inclusion safety component. Then it moves to safely to learn and take risks. So there's the learner safety component. Then there's that the area of, of the learner agency and an and opportunity to contribute to a broader collaboration side of things. So there's that kind of contributor age, uh, safety. And then finally is that piece of challenge safety because this student challenged the norms and the conventions. They actually called out the teacher, didn't they? And and, and in, let's face it, in some classrooms, you know that, that that kid would be chastised if they ever did that. So by giving them the permission to do that, it didn't set them, set them up as an us and them. It set them up as equals. And all of a sudden, it elevated everyone in that room to a respect level uh, that was quite uh, profound. So... Psychological safety is, is a really important component of, of, of going down this path. And, and I love the way in which you've eloquently given us insights into the different dimensions of that. My next question to you, though, is so much about Imagine If is about wondering and awe for today, for a new tomorrow. 
I want to challenge that a bit and ask you, what aspects of school do you believe that we should persevere with and preserve in 10 years or 20 years that currently exist in schools today? I think the piece for me that always stands out at the end of any any of my own teaching years, but also from what I see brings the most joy and love and I think growth in, in both students and teachers is actually this, this bit about community. Mm-hmm. And, and whether that needs to happen, you know, in, in the classes that we envision now, separated by grade level and, you know, sometimes by subject or whatever, like, I don't know that that needs to stay. But this, this element of belonging to somewhere, I think, is really critical. And there, there are, of course, I think a lot of amazing ideas around school being online or, you know, being able to dip into all different kinds of educational opportunities. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of, like, constructs around learning for the future that I think are, are beneficial to learning. But when it comes to the individual and when it comes to the idea of belonging and, and feeling, yeah, safe, as you've talked about, Adriano, but... But also, I think just developing as a person, I think that connection is so important, the connection to to other people. And again, whether that happens with 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 other kids in the age group or whether that happens to an adult, I mean, I think can be discussed. But but this safe place, um, there are so many kids that don't have that at home, you know, or, or have that to different degrees. So I can't imagine a future of learning or, or just of life more generally. It doesn't even maybe need to happen in school, but, but I can't imagine a future for young people where that deep sense of community and belonging is not core to their development and really to their joy and love of life. Lonnie, beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Love hearing you talk about belonging um, in that way. That's so important to us. It's such an important element of our research as well too. I mean, we would, we would say that, you have to feel a sense of belonging to be able to fulfill your potential. And if you're feeling a sense of belonging and you're fulfilling your potential, then you're more likely to do good and right in the world. So therefore it all starts with belonging. I want to talk about some of the pieces that make up all of that. And I want to talk about some of the things that the, the concepts that are big in the world at the moment and in the world of education. And I want to pull you down to practical steps and practical things we talk a lot about collaboration. We talk a lot about student ownership or self-determination. We talk a lot about diversity and inclusion. What do these things look like in practice in a classroom? Pick a classroom. It's Thursday, two o'clock. You've walked in there. What are you seeing? I think I, I'm reminded of like the very first time I walked into High Tech High, actually. Um, and the way that I explain it is that my heart felt at home. Like it, it just was this feeling of like, this is what teaching and learning should be. And, and I've strived always to have my classes kind of feel like this. But, but the way that it felt was it wasn't silent. There were kids some kids were running around, some kids were working in a corner, some kids were working alone, some kids were working in a group. But there was a sense of joy happening. And there was also a sense of purpose happening. And, and, and those are kind of one in the same, but also they don't always look the same. 
Um, I went over to a group and I said, you know, can you tell me about what you're working on? And there was a group of four boys that were working on something. And, and one of them started out by telling me that they were working on a project about cancer and they were making this portrait for a survivor of cancer. And then they were learning about how cancer manifests in the body, blah, blah, blah. But what, what I noticed was that every single kid, all four of those boys could tell me what they were working on. And, and it wasn't just like, oh, my teacher told me to do this. It was, no, we were working on this for something else. That was kind of my first clue of agency. And also, um, yeah, I would say purpose. But then the other thing is that I couldn't find a teacher. <laughs> and I think for some people, that's like a, a punch in the gut. It's like, what, where's the teacher? But actually um, the teacher ended up being in the back of the classroom, sitting down with a group of kids. And what I felt from that was this deep sense of trust. And we've talked about trust before, but you know, these kids could be, there was no monitoring necessarily in the way of like, you know, what are you working on? Get to work. It was, it was really just, do you need help? That really, that facilitator role was really clear in, in the physical manifestation of the class and the fact that they were sitting with a group of kids, but also in the sense that kids really did not seem afraid. They didn't seem scared that an adult walked in. In my class at that time, when I was teaching at a traditional school, you know, if an adult walked into the classroom, every kid would kind of stiffen up and like make sure they didn't have gum in their mouth and make sure that they were like doing what they wanted, you know, needed to do. So there was, I think a lot of like evidence in that just one experience of walking into a school that, that just showed me what this actually could be in school. And that was my big takeaway from the first time walking into that school was like, this is what, this is what school and learning should be. Um, it's not every day that school looks like that, you know? And I think that um, of course in, in my own classroom, you know, there are definitely times where in project-based learning as we touched on like there is a need to do maybe more direct instruction or there needs to be you know a bit more of I would say less looking like what I just described but I think on the whole when you actually talk to kids and when you ask about their experience and you see the way that they react to each other and to adults it just is a completely transformative experience but also a completely different way of thinking about the purpose of school and about um, you know, how kids are existing in that. So I, I don't know that there's a perfect answer to that, but I think there are definitely clues to look for in, in a space where kids are working, whether that agency is taking place, whether, you know, inclusion or diversity is em embraced in that and whether kids are really working with a sense of their own purpose or someone else's. Okay, so I want to take us in a, in a little bit of a direction here. And so I um, loved, loved, loved what you said there. 20 years ago, I would have been terrified by just about everything that you said there because I grew up in that, in that, in, I grew up in a different world, you know, and, and, and during the era while I've been teaching, the world has changed. At some point, I think possibly because I was surrounded by very good colleagues and very good people who helped me realize it, I've worked out that I needed to change around that and slowly got dragged kicking and screaming towards. <laughs> The future, um, and, and I quite like it now. Um, that bit where you said, you know, my heart felt like home. There's a sense of joy, a sense of purpose. Kids didn't feel afraid. I think it starts with teachers being afraid, all right? And you, you talk about an example there about, you know, kids working around a, a sense of a case study of, of, of cancer survivors. So I'm a cancer survivor. I had cancer in 2015. It took me two years before I could talk publicly about it. 
and I think because I was frightened about what people would say about it. And then I kind of realized that actually there was a thing that I could do, which is to say, if you think you've got any symptoms, for goodness sake, go and get checked out. Because the cancer that I had was the same one that took my father down. It's just they found it in me 15 years earlier because for some reason I went and got myself checked out and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And by the grace of God, I'm, I'm, I'm okay now. There's a journey that we have to go on as teachers from the old to the new, which is the same as the journey of the world from the old to the new. It's the same as the journey of schools from the old to the new. How do we help teachers feel less frightened about today and today's learning for tomorrow's world? So I, sorry, I'm a little emotional, uh, Phil, because I just thank you for sharing uh, your your story and and also... Um, yeah, I, I'm going through some things myself, actually, where I'm not quite sure where this road goes in terms of my own health. So it just, uh, I just, yeah, thank you for sharing that. You know, I think, I think teachers have every right to be afraid. Um, I think that we have conditioned ourselves in so many ways. And now a lot of teachers are products of that same system. They've grown up in this system of exams and of, uh, you know, curriculum and, and learning being a certain way. So, so I think it's completely natural <laughs> to be afraid. And I think there are some people that, that wonder if, you know, teachers can ever change to kind of the new way of thinking. And I think there are some that kind of have cast them out and said, well, yeah, there's some that will just never change. But, but to me, it, it comes down to a deeply personal journey. And it comes down to understanding that actually, a lot of the change that we fear isn't actually, we don't actually fear the change that we're moving towards. We, we actually just fear change. It, it means that we, we need to deeply reflect on, on ourselves. And by even insinuating change, it means we're not doing something good enough. So when even a new initiative is brought in and it, it seems like the, the best idea in theory, if that means that I need to change something as a teacher, it also means needing needing to realize on a foundational level that I'm not doing something good enough. And that's hard. How can we expect anyone to just kind of open their arms and say, yeah, let's just throw out everything we've been doing and just move into the new way. So even when things theoretically are a good idea and we can logically say, yes, we need to move into something else to actually you know, work on the behavior and habits of that is something really different. And, and for me, it comes down to some of the exact same things we're talking about with, with the students in classes. You know, do, do teachers feel accepted? Do they feel fundamentally accepted for who they are in their school community? Do they have a school leader or people, colleagues who know them, who understand what their strengths are, who know what they bring to the table? Do they feel like they can be themselves? You know, like, like those, that very first thing that you talked about, Adriano, of, of kind of the psychology behind this kind of acceptance, I think it goes for, for teachers as well. It's for human beings. But the other part of that is, I think that there needs to be a consideration around helping every individual person find out what, what are they afraid of? What is the thing that actually is deeply affecting them or blocking them from actually moving towards something different? And I think that's a very personal thing. And that's the work of, I would say, most likely a school leader to understand and have those conversations and really listen to the individuals. 
that's something that I think in the, you know, kind of consulting world. And I'd imagine if, I mean, we come in, we do a lot of workshops and stuff like that, but, but the next thing that we tell leaders that they have to do is they have to get to know their staff and talk to them and understand how they're feeling about this. So for me, it's, it's very much about, of course, a lot of theoretical things in providing a safe space and a community of, of adults in, in the learning environment in a school, for example, but, but also it comes down to people. Yeah. And we have to be able to also see that that change in this way along this journey is a deeply personal one. And not all people are going to react you know, as pioneers and first movers, but actually there's a fair amount that need to see it. There's a fair amount that need to um, have time to think about it and come around to it. And then there's gonna be a fair amount of people that are going through things in their own lives that actually impact their ability to, to change uh, just very generally. And it doesn't really matter what the change is. So again, I think it's coming down to that just people are people. And, uh, and, and change is a journey and using, you know, a new pedagogical approach or moving towards the future, you know, is, is I think a lot less about theory and a lot more about, you know, people uh, changing generally and what that journey is like. Uh, first of all, I want to say to both of you, thank you very much for uh, giving us a little bit of an insight into your own personal journeys and, and what's going on. Uh, that's a, a powerful moment in this conversation. And so much of this conversation is fundamentally about reimagining education from a position of authenticity. Well, I feel I just witnessed that mm-hmm. firsthand. And when when the adults in our learning environments have the courage to step into their vulnerability and model that for the young people in their care, there's a greater chance that young people are going to be able to be prepared for the kind of change readiness and the emotional competency that's required to move from the position of surviving to thriving. And both of you just then reminded me of this uh, Ozenvarel quote that I heard the other day, and that and this is the quote, those who get ahead in this century will be those who dance with uncertainty and find danger rather than comfort in the status quo. Both of you as educators were just prepared to step outside of the control of, of the norm of a teacher and share something that's personal uh, and, and profound to both of you that's transformational. And when young people enter into that space, you then give them the permission to do the same. So I just wanted to say thank you to both of you. I've got two quick questions for you because I'm very conscious of time and and I want to go through them. But I need to frame this first one, a bit of play on words here. I want you to pick one option of the what I'm about to give you and tell me why that's the option we should start with tomorrow in our schools. Imagine if students have more opportunities to learn at different times in different places with any time, anywhere learning become the norm, one. Number two, imagine if student, sorry, teachers assume the critical role of learning designer and coach and mentor on the sidelines. Three, imagine if in an online environment with access to unlimited information, the focus on memorizing things lose meaning and are replaced by the need to know how to select and use information appropriately in the right context. Four, Imagine if all school leaders had the courage to lead and had the courage to accept that right now, perhaps right now, in this COVID crisis time, it's their crucible moment and it's the educational spring that we've been hoping for for a long time. Which one of those four would you pick tomorrow to start with? Number four. Oh, I, because because I, I, 
I, I see, I mean, number two was also my, I think my backup or mm -hmm. at least my first thought. Um, but, but I also think that, um, th that at the end of the day, there, there are some permissions that need to be granted to really do something radically different. And um, I think when we're talking about teachers really moving into facilitator roles and coaches, there, there needs to be some permission granted for that. But oftentimes it does stop at the leadership desk um, to have the courage to, to do something like that. I, I think, I think number four, absolutely. With the caveat that leaders also understand that they're going on a journey as well, that they might not know all of the answers, but they need to be, uh, actively involved as co-creators and co-learners in this process with their staff. I, I have seen some leaders that, that take these decisions about, you know, whatever it might be, um, and they're bold decisions. They're, they're, I'm like, yes, they're great decisions. Um, but, but also kind of fail to recognize that they're a learner as well. Yep. And, uh, and I think that there's, you know, some limitations with that. My final question to you is this, what is your life of purpose? What do I stand for? <laughs> My purpose has, has always been to help young people identify who they are and what they stand for. And, and that has been, from that very first day <laughs> in that class in college until now, it, it hasn't wavered. Um, I think the ways in which I've worked with it, the ways in which I've thought about it um, have changed from you know, having a direct role of that as a teacher to really working to empower other people you know, to, to ask that question. But, um, but I think my purpose is to help other people find their purpose. And uh, I think it's been that way since I've been 21. Lonnie, listening to you talk, and I, Thank you, Adriano, for taking the questions for the last few while because I've managed to compose myself now. Um, Lonnie, listening, listening to you talk today has just been an absolute privilege and thank you for the opportunity to engage with you about um, life as much as learning. We've heard what your life of purpose is. There's a high-performance learning culture that goes with that. As I've been listening to what you've been teaching us today, I've heard you talk about the time and space to worry less, the reciprocity of belonging in a, in a learning community, the permission to be afraid and never forgetting that change is about people. In terms of any other advice to listeners out there about anything else you want to say about how to create the high-performance learning that enables you to live that life of purpose, what would you say? I think number one is, um, it is to practice it. And, and, and I think it's one thing to say it and one thing to come on podcasts and talk about going slow and slow cooking and, and purpose. But, but I think another one is to live it. And I think about that a lot with my own family and my own kids. And, you know, the, how, how often am I, you know, taking the time to listen to them and go slow with them. And, and I think there are definitely periods where I don't, and, and I reflect on that and, and really want to do better at that. So I think the first thing is, is to examine that it, this is not just pertaining to school and, and to work and all of that, but it really is a life philosophy. And, and it's something I think more of us are coming around to. The second thing I would say is, um, I, I think just to reiterate, Phil, what you said about, you know, people being people. And, you know, I think change in education comes down to the individuals that are in it. And when we see that, I think it becomes a lot less scary because it's about relationships and it's about having conversations that move people forward. And it might not be in big, massive ways all at once, but even small conversations, you know, over lunch about something really small actually can move someone when it's with the right person a lot further 
than, you know, watching a video or doing some kind of massive, you know, school reform. So, so coming down to the person level, I think is something that, that always stays with me. Um, and lastly, I don't, I don't really know how to say this, but, you know, learning is not, is not complex. I mean, it's really, really complex, but it's not really complex. And, and when we watch like small kids, for example, we see learning happening all the time. And I have three small kids, so I see learning happening all the time. And, and actually, when, when we try to simplify school to, to be more natural in that way, I think we hit something far more magical than when we try to overcomplicate this just extremely natural process. Um, and, and I know that that's kind of a loaded phrase to say, but, but I try as much as possible to simplify things and actually go back to how we function naturally um, in terms of kind of a compass for, for what it is that we're, we're working towards, but, but also you know, how we think about this work. Parker Palmer said this, whoever our students may be, whatever the subject we teach, ultimately we teach who we are. Phil, imagine if there were more educators in this world who taught who they were with the example that Loni has just given us in this last 50 minutes about who she is. What a privilege it has been to be in your presence to listen to your journey, to understand very deeply about what brings you to each day. It's authentic, it's collaborative, it's learner-owned, and it's highly equitable. Thank you for supporting the Game Changers podcast in trying to change the game and imagine learning from the context that is from a deeply human-centered position. Uh, it's been a privilege and an honor, and uh, this has just been mind-blowing, and thank you. Bravo, Lonnie. Thank you both for having me. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.